Let's pray together. Our Father, your word is a lamp for our feet and a light on our path. Help us to treasure it and to delight in it. And as we study your word together now, we ask that you would be transforming us so that our lives would bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this week we continue our study of Hebrews. And Hebrews is widely believed to be an address to a church in the vicinity of Rome, a church consisting predominantly of Jews who had come to faith in Jesus, who now profess Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. And in doing so, they'd stepped out from under the umbrella of Judaism and accepted religion in the Roman Empire to become very vulnerable as Christians. It would still be a a few hundred years, at least, before Christianity was accepted by Rome. At the time of this small church, uh, it was viewed more as a cult, weird at best, and sinister at worst. As Jews, they'd been safe, provided, of course, that they didn't try to revolt. But as Christians, they were facing increasing persecution, persecution which history tells us would only get worse. And by persecution, we're not talking about a bit of sledging at work. Uh, we're, We're talking being burned alive to provide a bit of mood lighting at the emperor's garden parties, being imprisoned being torn to pieces by wild animals as entertainment for the crowds. For this little church near Rome, there were potentially very serious consequences for believing in Jesus. And as the temperature rose, as that pressure intensified, the temptation to turn from Jesus and step back under the umbrella of Judaism, going back to an accepted religion for the sake of self-preservation, would have been very strong for many. And to this little church out on the hostile seas of the world, being tossed around in the shadows of great persecution, the author of Hebrews has a message of exhortation, of warning, and of the deepest encouragement. And we've already started to see this over the past few weeks. Jesus is better. He is the better priest. He is the better sacrifice. His is the only salvation. His is the only rest. The superiority of Jesus is the anchor for their souls. He is the supreme and final word of God, the creator and sustainer of all things, supreme over the angels in name and honour and role and being and reign. So stand firm in the faith. It's with this spectacular vision of Jesus fresh in their minds that the author gives them the first of several warnings in the book. So chapter 2, verse 1. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment... How shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders and various miracles, 
and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. In Greek, the the word for drifting away is a nautical term. It describes a, a boat that's drifting in the tides, drifting so that it misses its intended harbour. If you've ever spent time on boats, you'll know that even if the anchor's down, you need to be paying attention because as the currents change and the tides rise and fall, the anchor can come loose from the sea floor and you can begin to drift. And this kind of drifting, it's, it's not necessarily intentional, but it happens because you're not paying attention. You've been careless. And this is a danger facing this little storm-tossed church near Rome. As the temperature rose, as the persecution increased, as they began to feel the costliness of their faith and the pressure to to turn from it, there was a, a very distinct danger that they'd take their eyes off Jesus, that the problems of the world around them would capture their attention would, would play on their hearts and their minds and their vision of Jesus and his gospel would diminish. There was a danger that they would become careless about Jesus, devoting their attention to things other than him, things that they thought were, were more pressing or more important, and that they would begin to drift drift back to the dead end of Judaism, which provided familiarity and a temporary safe haven, but was ultimately without life because it was without Jesus. And the danger of drifting isn't unique to that little church. It's the history of the global church. The moment we cease paying attention to Jesus, the moment we become distracted or more absorbed in the world around us, in chasing its pursuits and adopting its philosophies, the moment we loosen our grip on the gospel and become careless with our lives and our doctrine, that's the moment we've begun to drift. It's the way of the human heart. It's the way of the church today. It's what happens when the anchor is lifted from Jesus. There's no friction as we start to move away. We can't even notice it unless we're taking careful, uh, careful bearings of where we are. All of a sudden, we've left Christ far behind as the tides of culture flow. We've become separated from Jesus, our life and our saviour. You might recall this is what happened to the church in Ephesus. We see in Revelation that the Ephesian church looked like it had it all together. But Jesus says to them, you have neglected your first love. All the programs were in place. Everything looked right from the outside. But they'd moved away from Jesus. When our anchors lift from Jesus, we become subject to the tides of life. And when we finally look up, it might be too late. Are you drifting? Am I drifting? Are we, the church, the body of God's people in this place, are we drifting? Have we taken our eyes off Jesus? 
Have we forsaken our first love? The fastest growing evangelical movement in the world today is in Iran, an Islamic theocracy, a country that's governed by the strictest of Islamic law. It's one of the most dangerous places in the world to be a Christian where persecution is severe. I wonder if an Iranian Christian could see the state of the church in Australia, or even of us here, what would they think? Other than being amazed by the incredible freedom that we have, what would they think of our commitment to the gospel? What would they think of the way we steward our resources, of our zeal in sharing the gospel? There are many reasons that we might drift. One is through the tide of years. Once professing Christians are actively living out, they're calling to follow Jesus wherever God has placed them, gradually become a drift on the seas of life as time goes by. Perhaps still keeping up appearances, but the devotion, the heart for the Lord, that steady endurance is gone. Uh, Robertson McQuilkin, an American author, wrote quite a haunting poem about this. He says, It's sundown, Lord. The shadow of my life stretched back into the dimness of years long spent. Life with you untoiled and free. But I do fear. I fear that I should end before I finish. Or finish but not well. That I should stain your honour, shame your name, grieve your loving heart. Few, they tell me, finish well. Lord, let me get home before it's dark. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Another way we might drift is through familiarity. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the the wonder of forgiveness, the joy of the hope of heaven, so precious in those days and weeks when we first believed, but now so familiar. We can lose our sense of awe, of humility, of thankfulness, of joy. We can take the gospel for granted, perhaps even look to something else to capture that sense of wonder again. We've enjoyed incredible freedom of religion in our country for so long that we think it's normal. I wonder how have we stewarded it to extend God's kingdom? And then there's a danger of busyness. We are a a busy people living in a society where busyness is a bit like a crown of honour. But busyness can bury us. As our time, our attention, our priorities are taken up with a million other things, the gospel of Jesus can so, so quickly and easily move back into the dark recesses of our mind. As the saying goes, if Satan can't make you bad... He'll make you busy. The passing of time can set us adrift. Familiarity as it dulls down the truths of the gospel can set us adrift. Busyness as it steals our, our time, our energy, our focus can set us adrift. When our anchors have lifted up from Christ, when we're no longer focusing on him as the centre of our life and our worship, when we lose sight of him as being so much better than anyone or anything else, when we lose our first love, 
we're set adrift. And when the storms come, as they always will, we can find ourselves far, far away from safe harbour. So what is the antidote to drifting? Verse 1, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard. Paying careful attention is key. And what is it that we've heard? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. This great salvation spoken by Jesus himself and confirmed by eyewitnesses, testified to by signs and wonders from God and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. Jesus set us free from slavery to sin and death. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. He rose again that we might have life eternal. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has in store for those who love him. We were once dead in sin, but now we are alive in him. He is our great salvation. Praise the Lord. Everything that the Old Testament pointed to has been revealed in Jesus. He is the fulfilment of the law and the prophets. He is the promised Messiah, the salvation of the world, the glory of all nations. Jesus is better. His gospel is better. He alone is the way, the truth and the life. So pay careful attention so that we do not drift. And here is the warning. The consequences of drifting, of ignoring the gospel of Jesus, are severe. For since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? The author here moves from a lighter argument to a heavier And he sets up the lighter argument like this. He says, the law was mediated by angels. It's something that the Old Testament alludes to and the New Testament confirms in Acts 7 and Galatians 3. When God imparted the law to Moses on Mount Sinai amidst the the fire and lightning and thunder, he did so through an angel. And that law mediated through angels was binding Every violation and every disobedient received its just punishment. And we see this in the Old Testament, don't we? Sometimes it's, it's on a large scale. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And when the people made a golden calf and, and worshipped it, just days after receiving the law, God sent a plague upon them as punishment for their sin. Sometimes it's, it's punishment of an individual. In Numbers 15, we learn of a man breaking God's law by collecting sticks on a Sabbath and is stoned to death. Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu offered unauthorised fire and incense in the tabernacle, treating God's holiness with contempt in doing so, were consumed by fire for their disobedience. It might sound a little extreme, You might even ask if it's fair. But God had spoken. The God of creation, the God of all holiness had spoken and his word is not to be taken lightly. 
And even though it was mediated by angels, any transgression of the law had consequences. The price for sin had to be paid. Now that's the light argument. It doesn't sound too light, does it? If God's punishment always came to those who broke the law, how much surer would punishment come to those who reject the word of Christ the word that wasn't mediated but came directly from him. If ignoring that that lighter revelation in the law, if turning your back on it and going against it saw you duly punished, how much greater will the consequences be of ignoring Jesus Christ? How will we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? And the startling thing about this warning is that it's being delivered to church folk to believers. This is not a warning to non-believers to repent and turn to Jesus. It's a warning to professing Christians not to move away from Christ, not to ignore him. And ignore is is a a passive word. It's a word of neglect. This little storm-tossed church is in great danger of drifting away, of losing their focus on Jesus and his gospel, of neglecting the way, the truth and the life. And for those who do, there's no escape. It's a startling warning. But Jesus himself warns of this danger. In the parable of the sower, he speaks of the seed, that is his word, that falls on rocky ground, that grows quickly but then withers because of trouble or persecution. He talks of the seed that falls on thorny ground, that gets choked out by the worries of the world, by the deceitfulness of wealth, and by desire for other things. It's a seed that falls on the good soil, those who hear Jesus' words and accept them, those who cling to him, hold tight to him, that go on to produce a crop. In John 15, Jesus says to his followers, Remain in me just as I remain in you. We have an active part to play in our faith. In remaining in Jesus, in in digging deep into his word and allowing it to transform us, in prayerful obedience, in faithful endurance. And our God helps us in this, absolutely. But we have an active part to play that we do not drift away. That little church near Rome were in danger of drifting. Their focus on Jesus was loosening. Their their anchors were up and the wind was beginning to blow. Hold fast to Jesus, the author urges them. Pay the most careful attention. And to us, the morning is the same. Though we don't face persecution like they did, we are very much in danger of drifting of losing our focus on Jesus, of ignoring our great salvation. The idols of our age include things like power, approval, comfort and control. What sway do these hold over us? What is it that holds our attention? Politics? Mandates? The latest releases on our streaming services, increasing our wealth, furthering our careers maybe, 
controlling the people or the the situations around us, guarding our, our time and possessions? What is it that we strive for? What is it that we we base our life and our choices upon? What is it that we hold as a, a yardstick for what is right and wrong? What is it that shapes our opinions and drives the way we spend our time and our energy and our resources? Is it Jesus? Or is it something else? I wonder what the Iranian Christian would say of us. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. It's a startling warning that urges each one of us to examine afresh our response to Jesus. Pay closest attention. It's something that we need to work at. Paying the closest attention to our Saviour, to his gospel, to his word. He is our hope and our salvation. He is the treasure for which we forsake all others. He alone is the anchor for our souls. So pay attention that we do not drift away. Amen.